while we're getting started this evening, you turn to Romans chapter 3. I'll begin reading in just a minute in verse 21. I want to apologize to everyone for last week. Uh, it's, uh, it's the difficulty of the COVID season. You know, you just um, you don't know. Uh, I wasn't actually sick. I was sick on Saturday. We had to make a call because <clears throat> I was sick just a little bit. Um, so I just, again, it's over-cautiousness because of the day. But uh, we do intend, I do intend, to finish all six of the sessions, one way or the other. I'm, I've got till the end of the year. I can make it. All right. So, um, again, uh, I apologize for that. I, I, I trust we won't have to do that again. All right. Well, let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we come and give you thanks for your gospel. We're coming to give you thanks tonight that we have the privilege of hearing that word. And we're coming and asking you now to speak by your spirit to our hearts in accordance with our needs. So we will understand and we will be who you would have us to be on this earth. And we're trusting you for that. And we would look to you in Jesus name. Amen. Romans chapter three, verse 21 is before this uh, section. Paul has been speaking about the need of the human race. And he's come to this conclusion that there is none that's righteous. That's in verse 10. There is none that's righteous, not even one. There is no one that has understanding. I thought there is. There's no one who gets it. No one knows the way they ought to live. And then he says this. There is no one who seeks after God. No one does that. Now, in light of that, it's kind of funny to think about that. Why are we here tonight if no one's seeking after God? Well, we're here tonight because God is seeking after men. The gospel is good news that God has come to save. That He has come to bring the entire thing to pass. Paul begins here by telling how bleak it was, how difficult it was. And then in verse 21, he talks about how God will begin to repair the damage done by the human rebellion. Verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in, in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of the of his righteousness at this present time, so that he would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's a very important verse for tonight, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is your boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And I want to move down to chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? 
Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We're thinking about faith. That's our subject. We're working off of that important verse that says that um, the just shall live by faith. Now, just is a word. We don't use that very often. You don't walk around saying, this man's a just man. I mean, I don't know if I've ever used that outside of a, a context of teaching the Word of God. It's a word which is kind of passed off. But what does the word just mean? What are, what are we talking about when we're saying someone is just? It's quite an amazing statement. The biblical concept in just has to, it takes you back to the idea of a person who has been, who is in a situation where you can't find guilt in them. You can't find guilt in them. They're just. It, it, it was used in the Roman court uh, where we would say guilty or not guilty. In a Roman court, they used different terms. And they would At the end, you would either be declared justified or condemned. Right? And Paul's picking up a lot of that vocabulary as he goes through the book of Romans. You know, later on in, in chapter 8, he'll start off with that great statement. There is therefore now no, never any condemnation. To them that are in Christ Jesus, not guilty is the is what he said. But but here's the here's the incredible point. When you read through and you hear this, there's none that's righteous. No, not one. There's no one who seeks for God. No one who understands. And then God would say this. But my just one, my just one, the one who is righteous will live by his faith. Now, how can that be? What's he talking about there? Now, if we were just thinking in terms of, of our interaction with one another, it might not be so bad. Now, the word righteous is also, again, here's what righteous means. It, it's, righteous means that a person has met a standard. A requirement's been put there, and they meet it. Now, there's none that's righteous. Paul says here that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, again, did you, it can be used on any plane, all right? Uh, Think about just a moment uh, when you were driving here. Not, not, I'm not here to pick on anybody, all right? Not here to pick on anybody. But when you were driving here today, there was places where the, let's say that the speed limit was 45. If you kept below, 45 or below, you were a righteous person with respect to that standard, right? Because you kept it. If you went 46, sorry, all right? You park in a no-parking zone, and you're unrighteous. Stay out of the no-parking zone. Righteous. Because the, it means that you put up a standard, and then you keep that or don't keep it. That's how you measure righteousness. The word means to keep the standard which was set. You can do the same thing in sports. And uh, sports have become so diversified that I, it's hard to get a sports illustration anymore because everybody plays a different sport. All right? So you can't. But whatever the rules are, you either keep them or you don't. You're playing basketball and you're on the offense, you can't stand in that little painted section for more than three seconds. Stay there for more than three seconds, you're unrighteous. And they blow a whistle if they see you. All right? This is righteousness and unrighteousness. It depends on the standard that is given. Now, we talk about each other, about people, this is a righteous person, but in our consideration of righteousness with regard to each other, it's fairly simple because it just means that we don't know. This guy seems to be doing pretty good. 
And I think most of you can remember being a little kid and being in that place where you know you did the wrong thing, but you just keep hoping if you can keep your mouth shut and smile the right way and don't engage your parents, they'll miss it. And they'll think you're still doing, you did your homework even though you didn't do your homework, but they don't know and it doesn't matter. So they walk away saying, yeah, he's a good kid. He always does his homework when you know very well you didn't do your homework. But that's, that's with regards to men. Now here's, here's the incredible part about what is involved in this book. He says, and in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God. Now, if you catch that one, the rightness with respect to God himself, the standard of real righteousness, the one we'll be judged on, is God and his character. Now, there's, there's two problems with that. Number one, the, the standard is pretty high, right? Number two, the judge is all-knowing. This is a real pickle, a real dilemma for the human race. And yet there is a verse that says that my just one, the just one will live by his faith, indicating that there is a person on this earth that God could talk about who has lived in such a way, who is, is in a situation where God can regard him as faultless. Faultless. That's amazing. It was on that, that subject that this... This question of what, what faith is came to me because, boy, you wanted to be in that place. <clears throat> you wanted to be there. Now, it's been a while since we were together. All right. So since it's been a while since we were together, we need to uh, review what we did conclude in our first two sessions. The first session, we talked about faith, what the meaning of that, that word faith is, and we considered this. The faith is a response to what God says. That I exercise faith when I listen to what God says and I build my life on that. All right, so that's that's one element of faith. The second element of faith we talked about, not last week, but the week before, was that faith seeks after God. That you really don't come up with an adequate definition of faith unless that, that attitude that you're expressing is actually moving towards God. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, but He who... Uh, he believes in uh, who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. That's that's what faith is doing. It's believing that. All right. Now, with that in mind, we again come to this dilemma of what are we talking about? How is it possible in a world in which we live for God to refer to anyone as just? Well, that can bring us to the first point, and that was the introduction, which isn't on your notes. But now we're on to the first point. It says the pursuit of God. I put that on there kind of purposely because uh, there is a there is a famous book. It's a it's a valuable book to me. Uh, it's uh, by A. W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God, and it's a book which describes how a man can seek after God, and that's what faith wants to do in all the way. But in this particular case, I'm thinking the other direction. It's not a man pursuing God. It's the fact that God pursues men. That's, that's his key point of the book of Romans. That there's nothing in the human race which is of any value. Nobody even cares about the fact that there's a God out there. They move to their own way. That's what we said at the beginning there. All we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. How do we go astray from God? We came to the conclusion that life was somewhere on this earth. It, it, we all picked a different 
direction, or a lot of different directions are picked. Some in the pursuit of pleasure, some in the pursuit of having things, some in the pursuit of having people think certain things about them, uh, building a career, having a family, having the biggest car in the, uh, you know, or the nicest car on the, the block and uh, having the biggest house to put it in, uh, being somebody prestigious, acquiring a particular education. We've all come to that conclusion. We've all gone astray. And what happened to us was this, that in that pursuit, we lost sight of God. We put him at our back. We just start drifting away, and, and and we're like the that horse with the with the blinders, which is looking so intently one direction that we've lost track of God altogether. That's why it, it's not really a very accurate description to say people hate God. They don't. Very few people. I mean, there are a few that actually genuinely seem to get angry when the whole idea of God comes up. But for most people, it's just they ignore God. They don't hate him. They just ignore him. The only time they get really irritated with God, and this brings us to the second point here, is that they're going their direction, and then they find out that, lo and behold, God has said something that gets in the way of that. The law of God, which is simply a a description of his character, so that they want to pursue pleasure, and then he says that there are some sexual pleasures which are outside of the bounds, and he, he, he kind of thwarts the, pro, the the situation. And then the human heart, by its nature, gets irritated with God for getting in my way. God says, vengeance is mine, and bumps and bruises take place on the face of this earth, and people get irritated, and they, they think, think that life will be found if I can even the score. And the only problem they have with God is he says, I can't even that score and be right. But that, 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 at that point, they will get irritated with God. But for the most part, most people are ignoring God altogether. What's the hope of the human race? What's on the piece of paper there? When Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth, he came, I came to seek and to save, to look them up and to save those that are lost. I came to seek and to save them. I'm here tonight not because I sought after God. I'm here tonight because Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which is lost. And He made a salvation for me. And then after He made that salvation for me, when I was alive on this earth, the Spirit of God came. And the Spirit of God came and started working in my life. I had no natural desire for God. That's what the Bible says. Nobody has it, but God comes and he starts to stir up our hearts and a dilemma comes when he stirs up our hearts because there are two sides to the work of the spirit of God in the heart. The first side is this, that he begins to put into a heart a desire to know God. Without that, there is no real salvation. It's not just that I'm I'm convicted of sin. It is that I begin to have a desire to know God. And so I begin to move towards God because that's, again, it has to occur sooner or later because that's what Jesus says. If, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. Right? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Come to me. That, that desire to come to him. The whole purpose we saw last week or the week before when we were thinking about this together is that Jesus Christ died the just for the unjust in order to bring them to God. Part of the work of the Spirit of God that He has to do before we come is to begin to excite in us a desire to actually know God. 
But parallel with that pulling of the heart towards God is another pull. Another, another, I am confronted with the fact that I can't go there. That I am not ready to make that step. That I am not worthy of that position. This is what we call conviction of sin. I begin to realize that I have accumulated a guilt with respect to God that, that needs to be answered and I can't find an answer for it. Now, it depends on you. It depends on how how the Spirit of God works in your heart. It depends on what things you've heard. And I shared that last time, and I share it again. It took me three years from the time I first started hearing the gospel and the power of the Spirit of God to when I finally was actually converted. And those three years were three years in which I couldn't quite let go of the fact that there was nothing I could do to alter the circumstance. I just couldn't, I couldn't quite let myself come to that conclusion. And therefore I kept trying to, to do the right thing. And I found out that the more I tried to do the right thing, the worse it got. It was, it was a, it was a hard three years <laughs> internally. Externally they might have not looked so bad, but internally terrible things happened as I faced the reality of my own sin. See, those two things have to come. I wanted to know God. That's not because I was great. It's because the Spirit of God was working. But I also began to realize that I can't get there. I cannot get there. Now, at that point, the Spirit of God is going to bring to us the good news, the gospel. And I want to go over that this week. How can a man really be just? How can it be that God would declare a man righteous? Well, first thing I want to note here in the next point there is that God can't just forgive us. He can't just forgive us. The problem of forgiveness is a big one. It's a, it's a problem for us, right? People say, well, why can't God... I don't know if you've ever been asked, why can't God just say, I'll, I'll forgive everybody? Universalist, you know, sort of a thing that, hey, let's just say it's not... Well, why can't He do that? Well, we all feel, in one sense, that would be nice for my sake, but it wouldn't be good for everybody, right? Because we don't want to forgive each other. I've found that out in, in life, you know been talking to people about their spiritual condition for almost 50 years. So you keep talking to people, you find out that forgiveness is a real problem with human beings, right? Now again, it depends on what you're forgiving. If you're forgiving somebody for forgetting to write a thank you note, that's no big deal. But if you're forgiving somebody for something that's really serious, if the forgiveness, I mean, I had, okay, he was a guy I knew in in high school, got into a car with a buddy of his, and his buddy was drunk and decided to drive like a wild man. His buddy flipped over the car. His buddy came out okay. He came out quadriplegic. You see, if you're in that situation, forgiveness becomes a more serious problem because you, if you forgive, you don't get your, your feeling back. You don't change your circumstance. Something has been irredeemably lost. And, and again, I'm bringing that up because we have a tendency, well, why can't God just forgive? Well, it wouldn't be right if He just forgave, right? Because the only reason that we can forgive is because we are transferring the matter of justice out of our hands to God's hands. If, if you don't do that, you'll never forgive. Because you're always going to be concerned about this matter. 
Where's the justice in this? That person is getting away with something. God asks us to let them get away with it in a real sense. Now, again, that's that's very general. We're not talking about forgiveness in detail, so I'm not going to go there. There are other factors. But in, in general, that's what we do. We're saying it's okay. I'm going to accept the loss. Now let it go. But the only reason I can do that is because at that point I'm saying, then, or I'm remembering, God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, and it will be. Everything can be repaid. That God will take care of justice <clears throat> if I'll take care of the mercy, because the issue for me in this day and time is to present the gospel in mercy to a, a world that desperately needs it. Justice will be worked out by God in the end, and then it will all be right. Now, if God simply forgave everybody in the end, then there would be no justice. Then he isn't just. Then the law that he put up there is a sham. Because if he said thou shalt not and there's no penalty for not doing it, it's not a law at all. There is no righteousness. Then it doesn't matter what people did. Then we should all live for ourselves and get as much as we can out of life and slam whoever we can to get what we need because it doesn't matter in the end. But it's not like that. God has to be just. And that makes the matter of forgiving me for my sin a serious, serious matter. How can God do that? How can he bring that to pass? That's a very important question. But he tells us it can be brought to pass because he says there is a person who is just. My just one shall live by faith. Okay, now we're going to this next question. And what is he going to do about all that? Well, justification is the process by which God worked to make it possible for him to say about me that I am not guilty, that I am completely not guilty. And that fact is one that I can state tonight, not because I'm proud, (laughs) because you can't get there by anything but by grace, but the fact is that it is possible for every person in this room to leave this place tonight. It's possible everybody that is listening to me to leave this night in a place where your position with God is completely cleared. Where there is nothing between. Where if you, if he appeared tonight face to face, we saw him. It would not be with fear. There's a wonderful verse in the Word of God. And I know that there's two, two aspects to our, our sinfulness that has to be faced. We're going to go on to more of that as we think later on. But with regard to our standing God, He is able to keep us from falling. And then this, this wonderful verse. Right? I don't know if you've ever felt the, the pressure. That we, and to present us faultless before the, before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. I can't tell you how long I lived in Christianity with a fear that I really didn't want. I kind of wanted to serve God, but I didn't want to be in front of him. Because this fear, because I knew who I was and I knew what I was like. 
And I was trying to do the right thing. But if I appeared there and God was honest, it would have been terrible for me and, and a very difficult situation because guilt was always hanging on my head. It was always in my heart. He might be just in the justifier of those that have faith. So how can God do it? How can God do it? And it's very important to understand. Okay, now, <clears throat> in this passage... He speaks about what God did in the Lord Jesus Christ to make a rightness between God and men. All right, first of all, he uses he uses three big words here that I want to, again, they're theological words that, again, we're just going to touch on. Justified, we've seen that. It justified, that is, declared righteous by His grace through redemption. Through redemption. Uh, the redemption word has to do with the idea of God coming and making a big deliverance of, for people who are in desperate, desperate need. All right, that's the second word. And he did that. And in the third place, in verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. The propitiation has to do with a sacrifice being made in order to turn away the wrath of God. The book of Romans begins with the wrath of God. Right? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And it, it's a description of the fact that if, if there's none that's righteous, no, not one, that's no small problem for human beings. Because God hates sin. The entirety of his being is antagonistic to sin. So again, I guess the... the I said I had a guilty conscience, was a kind of afraid, like I was going to be ashamed if I appeared before God. But it was a whole lot more than I was going to be ashamed. I mean, I felt like the shame would be the problem. I'd be embarrassed to be in front of God, and I just did that. You know, oh boy, I just looked at that, I just said that, I just, all that, and then boy... And again, I want to say this was me for years when I was a little kid. I just didn't want to die at the wrong moment. That was the theology I lived with. Was, you know, if you if you were in a good good moment when you died, it'd be good. But what happens if you die right after? Oh man, that would be bad. But it's more than just being ashamed. The description of the Word of God is that wrath is there. Wrath, the anger of God, the destructive anger of God, the repulsion of God, the utter angry repulsion of God towards sin. Because of its nature, sin destroys everything that is good. It destroys everything that God made. And all the purpose that He had when He said it, when He pronounced that creation very good, was marred and destroyed by the entrance of sin. And God, that's the picture. He's angry about that, if you would, in wrath. But it's not just that He's... he's blown his top. It's just he has an antagonism to that. But at the same time, he is seeking to change the circumstance. And so he decided, and this is in the purposes of God, he designed it so that a way could be made for human beings. No way, what we, we call justification. Justification involves two great actions by God. The first action by God was to take the sin of the human race and put it on the Lord Jesus Christ. To take my sin. To take your sin. 
But not only to take my sin, but here's the interesting thing. He's going to take me. We're going to see that as we go next week. But he's going to take me. He's going to identify me with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is going to put the entirety of, of my guilt, all of it, from the beginning of my life to the end of my life on Jesus Christ. Now, the, the Bible's crystal, crystal clear about sin. It, it's such an appalling thing to God. He says that the wages of doing the wrong thing is death. The wages. The day that Eve ate the fruit, she died. She died. Her relationship with God was gone. He would have to make the restoration of that relationship. I think it's it's really important that we look at that story and think about it for just a moment because we tend to think about, yeah, you murder somebody and God, you're in trouble with God or if you do terrible things. But Eve didn't do terrible things. I mean, eating. There wasn't, she wasn't stealing that from anybody. She didn't particularly hurt anybody. It's only Adam's the only other person there. She's not mad at God. She's not, I mean, how simple can it be? But you see, once she has done that, the wages of that, the wages of doing what God says don't do is death. See, it's not just that my collective guilt in my life led to death but all those lies all of them and I told a bunch of them all those lustful looks I was guilty of a lot of that all those angry moments all those vengeful moments I knew I know all about vengeance all right any one of them any one of them was enough but God God Brings them all together. Takes that whole soup, all of them, all of them, and puts them into the Lord Jesus Christ account. And the thing which has to happen did happen. It's, it's the gospel. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. All of them. Now, the reason it's got to be all of them is because one's left out, you're never going to make it. And he has to put them all there because there's nothing I can do about any of them. I could make restitution for some of the things I did wrong. Some may make restitution. But does restitution cure the problem? Even on this, in the human plane, does it cure the problem? They took something from you, and then they're forced to pay you back later on. You still went through something. You still lost. You're still going to have all kinds of problems from that. You can't make a restitution. There's nothing you can do. So he took the entirety of it, everything, everything that I was, down to the last thought, puts it on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And then the Lord went to a cross, and he died. And when he died, the justice for my sin and the justice for your sin and the justice for all sin is paid for. It's completely paid for there. Right? Now, in his exchange, something else happens, which is often overlooked. 
The exchange is not just that he bore my sins. It's that God arranged that when he did that, that I would then be given the credit for his righteousness. And that righteousness that we're talking about here is not the righteousness because he's the son of God. Not because he's the he's spotless in that respect. It was the righteousness that he worked out when he was born on this earth and did everything his father asked him to do for 30 some years. He was completely obedient. He was always pure. He was always truthful. He was always loving. He not, didn't have one thing to his account. One of the most beautiful passages, once you get this, once you get hold of it, one of the, has to be one of the great ones. Is, this is my beloved son in whom I am completely happy, well pleased. I approve of him in every dimension of his being, and I am God and know everything about him. Wow, what a statement. Now, here's what happens. The potential exists for that righteousness to be put to my account. And it was put to my account. Now, what I want you to see in that is that it's important to try to grab because we are so prone to try to add to this and so prone not to trust God completely with it. I'm trying to belabor it a little bit, but it's for a purpose. When I stand before God, I will look just like Jesus Christ. Because that's what I was given, his righteousness, right? Now, not, I won't, not in his divinity, not in his, in all those features, but in his character. Because it's his righteousness, right? And if you stood before God right beside me, what would you look, look like? You would look exactly the same. Right? And if the Apostle Paul was third down the line, what would he look like? Well, the Apostle Paul, I mean, he preached for for years. He wrote scripture. He did all those things. He must look a little different. He doesn't look any different. Because the only reason the Apostle Paul is in, in the presence of God is because of the righteousness of Christ. Because of the salvation that was worked out for him. And he will have exactly the same righteousness as I will have. And you will have. And every other brother and sister who's ever been on this earth trusted Jesus Christ and stood before God. Now, why do I say all that? Because we have a tendency to think that maybe because I have taught the Word of God for 40-some years, that I have that, that also is in there, right? No, it is not in there. I am thankful for the privilege of being able to participate in the coming of the kingdom of God over these years. And true enough, there is some reward out there for service. And you can have two, and we all have... But that has nothing to do with my standing before God. Every morning when I get up to go and to pray, I stand before God with the same righteousness I had the very first day that I came to Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have our access. Right? In one spirit to the Father. It's through Him. It's because of His righteousness which has been given to us. And the moment that that is given to me, I become on this earth a just one. Not perfect in my conduct. But in standing before God, I am just. The just ones, he says, will continue to live by faith. There's a lot to be done. I am not going to claim that I am, I am holy in myself. 
but I stand here as I have the privilege of living with God every day, walking right beside him because everything's been taken out of the way, not because of anything I ever did, but because of what he did. And that's why he says here that you're justified by what? By faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in order to help us understand what that means, Paul takes us to a picture. All right. And I, I want to go to that picture for today because he goes to Abraham. Abraham is the foundational character in the in the question of faith. Because it, it was Abraham who believed God and had that accounted to him as righteousness. We don't know that story they did. All right. So let's let's go back and make sure that we know what's going on in the story. God had called Abraham to come follow him. He promised him when he call, called him to follow him that I'll make you a great nation. We don't know the exact number of years, but it appears it's about 10 years later. Abraham has just delivered his renegade nephew Lot from a terrible circumstance. And he comes back after beating up on a very important person, (laughs) important group of people. And he's sitting all alone. All of his comrades have gone back to their tents. And he's all by himself in the desert of what's now Israel. And he's looking around. It obviously has come back on his head. He's done a dumb thing. (laughs) Any day they could come over the hill and get him. He doesn't have a fort to retreat to. He has no city to hide in. And when he got back and he had the chance to get rich out of this because of all the spoils that they brought back when they rescued Lot, he gave it all away. He said, no, I don't want any of that. So he's given everything away. He doesn't have any protection. And he's sitting there and God comes to him. God says this to him. This is a tremendous passage. Don't you think? I'm a shield. Don't be afraid, Abraham, because I'm a shield to you. Don't worry about all those people out there. I'm a shield to you. Don't worry. You don't have a wall. You've got me. And what? And I'm your reward. I'm your reward. Don't worry about what you lost. I'm a shield to you and a reward. Okay, now Abraham is still disturbed. By this time he's getting, he's in his 80s now. And he's had no success in having children up to this point, And the clock is ticking. And the hope that he's going to have a son is beginning to diminish in his mind. And he asks, oh, what, who's going to be the heir? The only one that can be there right now is my steward. Because I don't have a son. Then God says this to him, and it's important. God said, the one, the one who's going to be your heir will come from your body. Right? He's going to come from your body. Right? That's not going to be him. It'll be somebody. You're going to have a son. That's what he's saying. And he says, now you come outside. Come on out. Now, this is the desert, and this is an age where you don't have light pollution. Have you ever been in a desert place where there's no light pollution, in, a, in an arid place or a high place where there's no lights around? There are a lot of stars up there. We don't see very many of them because we get so much junk in the way that you just can't see them. But Abraham goes out there. What a, what, what a sight that must have been to look out across there with the Milky Way and all the stars and all that just beaming down on him. He says, Abraham, count those stars. See how many there are. 
And if you can count them, that's the kind of name, that's the kind of number. It's countless. It's, you can't do it. And that's the way your descendants will be. And here comes, that's where the verse comes in. Now, Abraham has in front of him the reality that he's getting old and that Sarah is getting old. He now has the word of God that, okay, I will give you a son. He has to make a decision. Remember what he said at the very beginning. Once you have the word of God, you have to do something with it. Once you know what God has said, you will either build on it or you're going to pass it by. And it says, and Abraham, what? He believed God. He believed God. And God counted that to him as righteousness. That act of faith. Now, what I want to see from this, something very important. Abraham was not rewarded because he understood what God was going to do. Right? He didn't know how God was going to pull that off. I mean, Abraham is in his 80s. And if he, if he hadn't had children to that point, what is the chances? How will God bring him a son? How is this going to develop? What's going to happen to make that? He doesn't know any of that. He doesn't have to know any of that. He's not counted righteous because he understood. He's counted righteous because he trusted the one who spoke. It was a person he trusted. Not a system, not a, not a theology. It was a person. I'm not trying to downplay theology. But when you come to the question of the cross, what happened at the cross? I know the teaching of the word is clear, that God paid for my sin there. How did he do that? Well, tonight we sang a hymn, <clears throat> uh, And Can It Be?, one of the verses we didn't sing says this, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." How can God die? What happened when God died? I don't know. When I was younger, I used to try to tell people. That came to the conclusion, you know what? I better not say anything I'm not really sure of. I don't know how that happened. How can it be that one person could bear sin for the entirety of the human race. I don't know. I'm going to tell you that. I don't know. How can it be that all this could take place? What took place? When Jesus bore the wrath of God, what did it mean? I don't know. I just know that there was wrath before and there's no wrath now, so he did whatever had to be done. I don't pretend to know all that, but I'm not saved tonight. I'm not here because I understand all the detail of that. What I'm here tonight, I'm here because the Word of God tells me that He did that in order to pay the price of sin. And He also declared that it was, that He is the one who I should look to by raising Him from the dead. Right? So the testimony of Scripture is that he bore my sins, and then he rose from the dead. That's the gospel, that he died according to the, died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he rose again according to the Scripture. That's the, why is the rise again important? Because it is the, it's the only person who ever did rise from the dead on their own, and it is the declaration of God that this is me speaking. We've been over that many times. Now, I am saved at the time I come and entrust my life to the one who's the Savior. 
I say that because sometimes we think we have to understand. No, you don't have to understand all. You just have to know that he said he can save you from the guilt of your sin if you will put your life in his hands. Abraham believed God. He didn't know how how Isaac would come. He didn't know when Isaac would come. He didn't understand anything. <laughs> I don't know to what degree that was miraculous. I just don't, I don't even know. I just know that Isaac did come because God who made the promise is faithful. God who made the promise that he can remove the guilt of our sin is faithful. The gospel is this, that I come and I repent. What is the repentance part? Well, we saw already that faith is, Spirit of God is going to tell me that the right thing to do is seek after God. The repentance is the stopping from all that, the seeking of life out there and a turning to God to come back to Him. The whole purpose of salvation is to get you to God. That's the repentance. The faith is I entrust the entirety of my life into His hands. I put it into Jesus Christ's hands. I come to a person. I address that person, and I put my life there. And when I do that, He is faithful. And at that moment, He bestows it. It becomes a reality for me. That I am justified before God. And from that moment forward, I have a position fixed in heaven, which makes it possible for me to live joyously every single day of my life. Because everything is all right with God. And if everything is all right with God, the rest of it is little stuff. Nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Why can nothing separate me? Because the only thing that can separate a man from his God is sin. And sin has been taken out of the way. Therefore, I am in complete safe place for all eternity. That's the gospel. And we're talking about the life of faith. But the life of faith can't be lived until the justifications are reality. I don't walk with God until that position has been established. Once it's been established, then I have the privilege of walking every day. I have the privilege of prayer. I have the privilege to enter into the church life. I have it. A privilege as I enter into that church life to participate in the coming of the kingdom of God. My life now can count, but it doesn't count because of my giftedness, and it doesn't count because of 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 anything within me. It counts because He died the just for me, the unjust, and He took me by the hand one day and He brought me to God. Ask again tonight, where, where's your standing before God? What are you counting on? There's only one thing you can stand before God in, and that's clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can add to that. There's nothing you can do to ever straighten out what's happened to, behind you. If you want to know God, you're going to have to come and trust Him. Entrust your life into His hands and trust Him for complete deliverance. And he will give it. He will give it. It was a great day when I finally came. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to that cross I came. Just as I am. Without one plea. 
but that thy blood was shed for me and that you bid me come to thee. Oh, Lamb of God, I come. And I came and he saved me. He delivered me. What's happened in your life? It's an important question. I'm concerned for people. I mean, just in general. That they, they come so close and they hear so much, but they never come to that place where they come to the person and trust their life into his hands. Where they never simply put it there to seek after God, to come to God. Have you done that? I'd encourage you to, to think through and just ask the Lord to bring. Because if, if you're here, I believe you're here because he's at least beginning that work to draw, to, to push you that direction. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right. But you can know justification as you trust the Lord. Justification by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come to you and we give you thanks for your grace towards us, kindness in coming to speak to us. Father, I come tonight and ask that you would do that deep work. Well, we thank you are always seeking. Father, for those that you're seeking tonight to draw them in, we come and ask you to bring them all the way for your great namesake. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.